Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you, youth praise team. They are up on the third floor every Wednesday night leading them, and we appreciate them doing that on Wednesdays and doing this on Sunday morning this week. We are in Isaiah, so if you'll be finding Isaiah, we are in chapter 11 this morning. Isaiah chapter 11. Well, another week filled with big news. News that kept us glued to whatever form of media you use in order to get your information. Locally, of course, it was all dominated by the firings of several football coaches at Tennessee. The reasons behind those firings and, of course, speculation about who would take over as the new head coach and the new AD. Though, of course, it didn't take us long to learn who the new AD was going to be. I watched part of the press conference that they had in, a, in announcing all of this on Monday. And uh, of course, there were promises sprinkled in. A lot of bad news in the present, but that bad news came with the promises of brighter days ahead. And we were assured that there was coming a day when the football program was going to win again and they were going to do it with integrity. That's what we heard from the chancellor of the university and the president of the university, both of them promising the fan base that these things would occur. Nationally, of course, the news was focused on the transition in Washington where one party is moving out of the White House and in control and another one is moving in. And of course, presidents, all politicians for that matter, always come with promises. And because we want the perfect society governed by the perfect government, the majority of people of the party that is in power tend to believe the promises that their party is giving them. So when a new president comes in of a new party or different party, that side begins to believe the promises. Never mind that we remember that all of the presidents of the past have broken their promises. I mean, let me give a few of the most memorable, broken, presidential promises. Woodrow Wilson in 1916 pledged to keep America out of the Great War, which was World War I. Only to one year later declare war on Germany. Herbert Hoover in 1928 was famous for his promise that he was going to end poverty in America. And his campaign slogan was, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Now, if you heard the year correctly, 1928, you might remember what happened a year later. After he promised the end of poverty, in 1929, America went through the greatest depression this country has ever faced. How about Franklin Roosevelt in 1932? pledging in his campaign promise to balance the budget, decrease government spending by 25%, and keep the U.S. out of World War II, all of which were broken. 
or George H.W. Bush. His campaign slogan, read my lips, no new taxes, which he broke by signing a law that indeed did raise taxes. As far as I know, there's only been one president that has never broken a campaign promise. Do you know who that is? It's not Biden. He hasn't had a chance yet. One president that has not broken a campaign promise, and that was Gerald Ford. Because Gerald Ford was never elected president. He served out the end of Nixon's term and then campaigned against Jimmy Carter, but lost. And so he's the only president that never had a chance to break his campaign promises. Now, most of you know that I don't usually talk about politics. I tend to stay away from the subject. Some of you want me to be more outspoken on political issues, especially during this time of all of the turmoil. And others of you are glad that I steer clear of the topic and try, try to remain focused on the Bible. But with the inauguration occurring this week, I thought it was a good time for me to break my promise and talk about politics. So today I'm going to talk about a political world where there are no promises broken. A political world where we are not divided. Instead, we are united. And yes, I know the new administration is promising that we are going to be united. But guess what? It's not going to happen. At least not perfectly. I want to talk this morning about a political world where there is no injustice. Instead, justice is secured for all people and we can all live in peace. And so I want to talk today about what I'm calling perfect politics. Now, by using that title, hopefully you understand right off the bat that I'm not talking about the Republicans and I'm not talking about the Democrats or I'm not talking about any other political party that you might think of. None of them are perfect and never will be because they are all comprised of sinful human beings. But there is one coming who is sinless. And when he comes again, he is going to establish his government and his reign, and then we will see perfect politics. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 11, the first nine verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. 
They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters of the sea. Well, anytime there is a change in leadership, whether that is at the University of Tennessee in the football program or whether that is nationally in the White House, we, we need to make sure that whoever takes over has the necessary qualifications for leadership. We do that in part by looking at someone's resume to make sure they have the background in order to do the job that we're asking them to do. And so I want to start this morning by talking about the resume of the king. You will immediately notice that Isaiah is prophesying or predicting something that is going to occur in the future. Clearly, a bunch of what he says there has not yet occurred, so we know even now it is still in the future. We've seen this in chapter 2, where he was talking about a renewed Jerusalem. And now here we are in chapter 11, and he's talking about a renewed world. In fact, this is our fourth sermon now in the book of Isaiah, and we've bounced back and forth. The first and third sermons dealt with the present reality of what the Israelites were going through. And now the second and the fourth sermon have looked forward to a future, a future that is going to be perfect. And Isaiah bounces back and forth to give, and this is key, to give the people hope in the midst of their present problems. And isn't that exactly what we need? Hope in the midst of our present problems, whether those problems are personal or national or all of the above. Well, in the chapters we've skipped since last week, Isaiah has warned the people that the Assyrian army was coming and they were going to conquer and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. We've talked about that before. And we know that did in fact happen. And then many years after that, probably 150 or so years after that, the Babylonians came and did the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah, including the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. So when we come to chapter 11, we've got to go back to chapter 10 and remember what has happened. So look at the last verse of chapter 10. Remember, I told you last week, keep your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at more than just the verses I put on the screen. Chapter 10, verse 34. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Now what Isaiah is talking about there is the fact that the Assyrians are going to come and they are going to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. However, God is not going to at that time allow them to conquer Jerusalem. In fact, God is going to fight against the Assyrians and he is going to strike them down. And notice the imagery that he gives there. He strikes them down like a forest with an axe. Now get the picture. The picture all around is a field of stumps. All of these trees having been cut down, symbolizing, of course, God's uh, fight against the Assyrians. Now, normally when we cut down a stump, of course, it becomes dead, no life in it. And it is so difficult to get out of the ground, we tend to just leave it, let it rot and decay over time. So we've got this field of stumps. And then again, notice how chapter 11 opens. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. There is life, it doesn't look like it, but there is life. And life is going to spring up out of one of these stumps from the root of Jesse. So what does this resume of the king look like? 
Well, number one, we notice that he has a royal lineage. Jesse, of course, is the father of King David in the Old Testament. And David had been promised that he would have a descendant upon his throne forever. Now, that certainly does not look likely at the moment. When Isaiah is prophesying about destruction of Israel and ultimately Judah, both parts of the divided kingdom, it doesn't look likely that there is going to remain someone on the throne. So what is the issue here? Has God forgotten his promise? Or is God simply going to break his promise? He, doesn't, he hasn't forgotten it. He's just not going to fulfill it. And the answer is neither. God was going to fulfill his promise when one day a descendant of David would arise from the stump of Jesse and would sit on the throne forever. And we know, of course, that this is a prediction. This is a promise of the coming Messiah. And we know that this, in fact, did occur when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, something we've just finished celebrating. In fact, again, let's flip back a page or two in our Bibles, and let's find Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is a similar prediction. It's a more famous prediction, but we've skipped it in this series because I've used this uh, as sermons in Christmas's past. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So when we're in chapter 11... Isaiah is saying basically the same thing, not in as famous words as those we've just read from chapter 6, but the promise is the same. Though the present is very bleak with its field of stumps, there is a future promise that is bright with a royal Messiah that is still to come. And so his resume has a royal lineage, and then secondly, his resume has a permanent spirit. Much of the time in the Old Testament, when the Spirit came upon someone, they did so temporarily. That is, the Spirit would come upon a person for a special task at a chosen time, and then oftentimes leave that person when the task had been completed. Though even in the Old Testament, there are a few people who enjoyed the permanent dwelling of the Spirit. But when we come to the New Testament... We find that after the day of Pentecost, every believer, and we've talked about this multiple times, and yet there continues to be a lot of confusion in the Christian church over this issue. But we discover in the New Testament that every believer receives the indwelling Spirit of God the moment that they are saved. So when it comes to the Messiah, he has the Spirit because he is an eternal member of the Godhead with the Spirit. And so when we go to the New Testament and we see the baptism of Jesus, what do we find there? The Bible tells us that when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove in the form of a dove. An external, visible symbol that the internal Spirit of God was descending upon the Messiah and would remain with him forever. And what this means is that Jesus is going to possess the wisdom of God well beyond the wisdom of Solomon. 
It means he's going to, to, to have the power and the might of God well beyond any other. And all of these things we're going to talk about in more detail when we move to the next point. So that's the resume of the king. Now let's talk secondly about the reign of the king. What is the Messiah going to do in this time of perfect politics? After all, when we, when we realize that someone is qualified for a job, we've gone over their resume, we've looked at their history, we say this man or woman is competent to do the job, and we give them the job. Once they have the job, we begin to assess how they're doing based on what they're doing. Are they doing what they promised they were going to do? Are they fulfilling the task that we've asked them to accomplish? So what is it that Jesus or the king is going to do when he reigns as king? Well, the first thing we see there is his reign is going to be with delightful fear. Now, those are two words that you probably have never thought about putting together. Delightful fear? How can anyone have delightful fear, especially the Messiah? Well, verse 2 says that the Spirit of God would come upon him, and as a result, this Messiah would fear the Lord. And in verse 3, we see added to the fear of the Lord that he's going to delight in this fear of the Lord. Now, we know that the Bible talks about people's need to fear the Lord, but frankly, it seems like an odd statement when it's applied to the Messiah. I've told you before that when I start working on a new sermon on Monday morning, I, what I do is I just get my Bible out and I go through and write down anything I think of when it comes to verse after verse. I've got a pad of paper and I just start with the first verse and I go through them all, writing down anything I think about. And so when I came to this part, I, I wrote down on my pad of paper, how can Jesus, the Messiah, fear the Lord? It seems sort of not right. So what does it mean here? Well, we've got to understand in general what the Bible means when it talks about fearing the Lord, and then we will apply it to Jesus. And this whole subject is difficult for us to understand because at the same time, we know that the Bible says repeatedly, do not fear. I mean, over and over again, the Bible tells us not to fear something or someone. And we also know that the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. So what does that mean? Are we supposed to fear the Lord? Or are we not? And the answer is yes. I mean, we're, there are some times when we're not supposed to fear, and there are some times when we're supposed to fear, and it depends upon the definition and the object of our fear. Now, we normally think of fear in terms of terror or horror, things that frighten us, like the fear of spiders, snakes, or heights, or even the fear of the judgment of God. And in this definition of fear, the unbeliever should be categorized. In other words, the unbeliever who has not by faith been reconciled through Christ to God ought to fear the judgment of God. They should fear the Lord in the sense of terror and fear because judgment is coming. But the believer does not have this kind of fear of judgment because our judgment has been taken away by Christ and replaced by his righteousness. So there must be another definition of fear. Jesus doesn't fear the Lord in the sense of judgment, and neither should we as believers. Therefore, there must be another definition of fear. And so this kind of fear is akin to reverence or awe, which is often accompanied by the love of God and results in, this is the kind of fear that motivates us through love 
to strive not to displease God by how we live our lives, but to please Him in all things. And the more we know the character and nature of God, the more we know the love of God, the greater our desire to fear the Lord, motivating us then to serve and please Him. And that is what we're talking about when it comes to Jesus. Now, if I were to ask you what you believe are the greatest characteristics of the godly life, fear would probably not be among your answers. You might think of holiness or purity. You might think of mercy or, or love. But you probably wouldn't say godliness is characterized by fear. And yet, here's what one author said. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. If we are thinking on the notes of biblical piety, none is more characteristic than the fear of the Lord. This author is saying that at the heart of godliness is a profound fear, reverence or awe of God. Perhaps we don't think about this topic because we think so little about God. We are consumed with ourselves, not God. And so the fear of the Lord in this manner is rarely thought about. But Jesus, being one with God, knows all about his nature and all about his attributes and thus strives to please the Father. He said it multiple times during his earthly ministry, didn't he? I have come to do the will of my Father. That is my desire and that is what I have come to do. So that's what's meant here when it says Jesus not only feared the Lord, but he delighted in fearing the Lord because it was his desire and delight to do God's will. And though this is obviously talking here about the coming King or Messiah, there is still application for us in the here and now. This kind of fear ought to be our delight and the motivation behind our desire to obey and please God. Again, as believers, not fear of judgment, but reverence and awe because this gracious and glorious God drives us to want to please Him and glorify Him with our lives. So delightful fear will characterize the reign of the King. A second characteristic of the reign of the king is righteous decisions. These decisions will not be based on external appearances or even audible words, but they will come with much deeper perception. As you know, ours is an age of appearances. Now, that has always been true, but I'm confident social media has drastically exaggerated this. I mean, we have an image to portray, and we are careful to make sure people only see that image that we want them to say, see. That is why we touch up photos before we post them. That is why we are usually careful about what we say online, because we are obsessed with our image. In fact, there is a name for it. It is the term narcissism. I was reading a book this week about the glory of God. And in it, it quoted extensively from several books about narcissism and specifically about the rise and what it called even the epidemic of narcissism. You say, well, what does narcissism have to do with the glory of God? If you're reading a book on the glory of God, why is it talking about narcissism? Because it's hard for us to focus and appreciate God's glory, much less live to glorify Him as the Bible calls us to when we're not thinking about Him, we're thinking about ourselves. 
And when our focus is primarily on us, then it's hard to glorify God. And narcissism is defined as an excessively high and unrealistic opinion about oneself and an obsession with one's public image. I trust you hear from that definition that we do indeed live in a narcissistic age where everyone and everything is judged by appearances and therefore many are obsessed with maintaining that image. Now, in some sense, we understand that's all we can really do, not the extremes that I've just mentioned, but obviously we don't know someone's motives. We don't know someone's thoughts. So we are left to judge by what we hear and by what we see. But that will not be true of the reigning king or Messiah when he comes because he knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. And as a result, he can make righteous judgments, righteous decisions, especially as it pertains to the most vulnerable in society who need justice. Now, there it is again, right? The fourth sermon in this series in Isaiah, and every single week we've mentioned justice. And it's not because I'm trying to work it into every sermon. It's because obviously this was a theme that was very prevalent in Isaiah's ministry and in his mind. And because our decisions are not always righteous, because they do not always flow from right information nor right motives, our society will always, in some sense, be unjust. But in that day, with a perfect politics prevailing, the king reigning supreme over all of his creation, using righteousness and faithfulness, will be the hallmarks of his reign right decisions, and the fulfillment of all of his promises. And again, though we cannot do that perfectly now, these traits ought to be increasingly characteristic of our own lives. In fact, you might have picked up on the clothing imagery in verse 5. And when you saw that righteousness will be his belt, maybe your mind immediately, as mine did, went to Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul is giving us the armor of God and part of that armor he says is the breastplate of righteousness very similar imagery here which then means thirdly that his reign will be characterized by just judgment that's what the second half of verse 4 is talking about when it talks about the rod and his breath striking the earth and killing the wicked it is a promise of coming judgment for those who are opposed to God and have not been reconciled to God through Christ. Which is why I mentioned earlier that category of fear that is terror and horror ought to be true in the life of an unbeliever because if they do not repent, they do face the judgment of God. But sadly, that is mostly laughed at today rather than being seriously considered. Now that leads to our third point. This type of reign that we see in the king will lead to the results of the king. What will this society look like when we finally have perfect politics, not the imperfect politics that we have now, but perfect politics? What will our society look like? Well, it certainly won't look like the mess we're going through now, and it won't look like anything we've ever seen before. Remember, our times are really not unique. Governments have always been run by sinful humans, and they always will be run until this day. They always will be run by sinful humans, which means we might proclaim justice for all, but it will never be actually delivered. 
But there is coming a day and there is coming one who will deliver on his promises. And at that time, his kingdom will enjoy a peaceful existence. This, of course, is the furthest thing from what we are currently experiencing. A world where war is never far away, where terrorism and all of the other forms of violence are seemingly a way of life, where division is deeper than most of us have ever seen in our lifetime. And that's really not just on the national scale. I've been going to the Southern Baptist Convention and I've been part of the Southern Baptist Convention for for 25 years now. And there's more division in the Southern Baptist Convention now than there has ever been in my lifetime. And certainly that's true on the national stage also. Peace here is pictured with a series of animals grazing or lying together. Predator and prey no more, just an idyllic setting. Now, whether this is to be taken literally or figuratively, and both are possible, it's debated among scholars which way we should go on this. If it's to be taken literally, then there is some change in the actual nature of some of the animals. In other words, a lion doesn't currently eat straw. And so if this is to be taken literally, then God is going to change the nature of some in the animal kingdom, which, of course, he is perfectly powerful enough to do. If it is to be taken figuratively, it doesn't alter the image either way. Both speak about a peaceful existence, no more dangers, no more anxiety. This picture reminds us of the existence prior to the fall in the Garden of Eden. And that is the existence we have to look forward to. Now, I'll be the first to admit that even in this peaceful state, I don't really see myself putting my hand in an adder's den or playing over a cobra's hole. Even though I might be fully convinced that all the dangers are gone, I don't think I'm going to be doing that. But it's a perfect picture of peace. Because every parent knows that if you happen to see your child playing around a poisonous snake, I mean, you're going to yell, you're going to grab them, you're going to kill the snake, or all of the above. Because they're in such danger. And so here we have not danger, but peace and tranquility where there will be no fear because there will be no danger. And this peaceful existence will also be uh, characterized by holy lives. God says it is his holy mountain with a holy people since the curse of sin and death has been removed forever. No more fighting temptation against sin. No more repenting of sin. No more guilt and shame because of sin. We will dwell in the holiness of God because we will have been made holy. The Bible says in both the Old and the New Testaments, be holy because I am holy. And in that, in that environment, we will be perfectly holy. But here again, though we've seen it several times during our study of Isaiah, while we await perfect holiness in the life to come, we are to be striving for it, however imperfectly, in the here and now knowing that we will never come close to achieving it, knowing that we can't make any progress toward holiness without the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Nevertheless, we are are called to strive toward holiness, looking forward to the day when God will make us perfectly holy. And then this reign will be characterized finally by intimate knowledge. The limited knowledge we currently have of God will be superseded by a much deeper knowledge. And that will be true not just for you or me, but for all who are in this kingdom. 
The knowledge and the love of God will permeate this society since everything against God and everyone opposed to God will not be there. And so you can see once again that in spite of my title, using the word politics, I've really not talked about politics at all, at least not as we know it. Because even while some have high hopes of what the next four years will bring, and even though others have great anxiety about those same four years, there is no human government that could ever provide the rule and the reign we see in this text with the Messiah, King Jesus. There will never be a utopian society in this life, but we are promised one in the life to come. And that is what Isaiah is describing here for us. Now, he doesn't tell us when, and that's what we always want to know. When is this going to happen? I don't know, and neither does anyone else. But we do know who. Because he came in Bethlehem at his first coming. And there was some confusion then about whether he was going to establish a kingdom then. But we know now that he did not establish his eternal kingdom at his first coming, but we do know that he's going to establish it at his second coming. And so while we may not know all the details, we know that he is going to be faithful to his promise and he is going to completely fill what he began to fill when he first came. Now you might be thinking to yourself, why all this talk about all of this anyway? I mean, with all of the political division, with all of the injustice, with all the crime and cruelty going on around us these days, not to mention the financial and relational strains going on in our households, wouldn't our time be better spent trying to solve some of these problems than talking about some perfect society that's going to come someday? Well, first of all, I would answer that those two things are not mutually exclusive. In other words, just because we're thinking about what God has promised us in the future doesn't mean that we shouldn't be striving to solve problems in the present. But while we're solving problems in the present, we ought not to forget about what God has promised for our future. Remember, Isaiah is writing this with the background of the awful invasion and destruction that the Syrian army is about to bring to Israel. So the people needed hope. They needed a reminder that God was going to be faithful to fulfill his promise. And that's the same hope we need today. A reminder that God is going to fulfill his promises. Isaiah is giving us a picture of the future so that we can persevere in the present. Now, I saw some of you close your Bibles because you knew I was working on the conclusion. So look at verse 10. Chapter 11 Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and listen to this last phrase, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is going to be a glorious place, meaning that the splendor and glory of God will be on full display. We see the glory of God now in creation, and we see the glory of God now in the image of his people, and we see the glory of God now in God working through his people, but all of that is veiled. We only see it partially. But in that day, the veil will come off, and we will see God in all of his glory. So even as we continue to wrestle with the countless things we wrestle with today, the headaches, the heartaches, the obstacles, the pain, and the suffering, we need to be reminded of a greater perspective. 
It's part of the reason we gather weekly to worship the Lord and be reminded that this is not all there is. That the one who created us and saved us has a wonderful future for us. And so I leave you, you don't have to turn here, but I leave you with the words of Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. He says, brethren, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now this is Paul. For this light, momentary affliction. And if you know anything about the life of Paul, you know that that doesn't describe his life, at least not the way we think. But in comparison, it does. Paul says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the picture, the promise that you've given every believer about the new life to come. As we so often focus on all the problems going on around us, we get discouraged and we lose heart. And I pray this morning that you've lifted our eyes to something better. Not so that we can forget about what's going on around us, but so that we can have perspective. That this light, momentary affliction is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you, to fix our eyes on the eternal rather than the transient, reminding us of the hope we have for our future so that we can faithfully persevere in the present. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.